one of the reasons why people are so, let's say, challenged in sort of this world or, or let's say overburdened or overworked or exhausted is because of this disconnection with, with the natural world. And I think there's a lot to that. And I would argue that we can take all the vitamins in the world, but if we're not getting vitamin N, time in nature, unplugged, disconnected, meaningfully disconnected from technology, we're never going to heal. I mean, that's a big piece of the problem. I know we're getting somewhat tangential, but for me, you know, nature is ultimately the, the great healing experience. And the more time I can spend in nature, the better. Hi, this is Joshua Spodek, and this is Leadership in the Environment. You're not the only one who cares about your impact enough to act. You're part of a global community undeterred by people saying, if others don't change first, then what I do doesn't matter, and other excuses. We've read the science. We can do this. This show is about personal responsibility, acting, and improving your life by your values. As guest after guest says, the challenge was hard, but thank you for getting me to do it. I wish I'd done it earlier. Listen on for leaders to inspire you, hear their struggles, and then act. Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast to commit to a public, personal challenge of your own. You're not alone, and you don't have to wait for others. You might not guess from the beginning of my conversation with Jonas that we talk about almost being attacked by hippopotamus in Botswana with crocodiles and apes that might rip your head off around, nor that we talk about family triumph and tragedy, about his experiences in the Amazon, exploration of the world, internal and external, because Jonas lives a wonderful life and it was not handed to him. We start by talking about his tremendous accomplishments and then we get more philosophical, but also always talking about action. And that's what transitions to talking about the environment. We then spend more time talking about his perspective on the environment, how his views formed along exploring the Amazon, Botswana, Texas, Mexico, also his own stroke at age 26, his brother's death about a year ago, his art, and more. This conversation was long, but I think also friendly. So let's just get right to it. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodak. I'm here with Jonas Koffler. How are you doing, Jonas? I am doing very well. Uh, good to hear your voice, Joshua. And thanks very much for the invitation. Glad to be here. Glad to have you. And I've been thinking about when we first met, I believe it was shortly after Hustle, your book came out and immediately it became a New York Times bestseller. And it was around the time when I was creating a course that was called The Fundamentals of Hustling. And I was like, I got to talk to this guy. And on top of that, you had a, an article in the New York Times that you wrote. So New York Times bestseller, New York Times published. But that's not how I know you because I know you as someone who is incredibly helpful and supportive. And I thought I was going to contact someone who wouldn't really have time for someone. And yet you were very generous with your time and, and support. And actually, before we hit record now, you've been helping me with my new book initiative, which is about to come out. And I'm going to start by saying thank you. And I'm also going to ask, maybe you could share a little bit about, for people who don't know you, I don't like to have you answer the same things over and over again that you've answered many times before, but could you give us a few bits about yourself? Yeah, I'd be happy to do that. And um, no, Joshua, look, just to be very direct and blunt, I'm, I'm glad I was able to help you in some small way. I mean, I think the whole reason for us being able to do this, have this conversation, coexist in the world is to help one another and to be supportive uh, and to actually care. In other words, to give about the projects that other people are working on, especially as they impact people's lives in a positive way, you know, and frame them from a, a standpoint of a possibility, not what is, but what could be. So, you know, as a sort of concerned citizen, agnostic politically, but um, very much plugged in from a humanistic standpoint, I'm, I'm glad I, I could help out. As far as my background goes, so it's somewhat diverse and, and illustrious, if you will. <laughs> um, I'm actually, in all honesty, just happy to be alive. Uh, so who am I? I'm a storyteller, uh, an anthropologist, uh, an artist, an entrepreneur. I'm involved in a lot of different ventures. Um, I've been very fortunate and had a lot of good luck in my life. I've also had some uh, really crappy luck, but that's part of the luck sequence, and we can talk about luck in, in a moment. I am the co-founder of two startups in the digital health and wellness space. One is focused on um, mental health and sort of integrative wellness, and another in, in, in terms of sort of physical well-being. A separate one is an app. I am the uh, managing partner of Coffler Pictures, which is a film and media uh, boutique 
focus on storytelling. It's based in Austin, um, LA. We also do some work in, in Vancouver. I'm an advisor for startups and work primarily in the fintech space, but also in the e-learning space as well. As you mentioned, I'm a, I'm a best-selling author of Hustle, co-author with Neil Patel and Patrick Blaskovitz, my wonderful uh, co-authors, and I've contributed to dozens and dozens of books and you know, published in New York Times and, and other uh, leading journals, fast companies, and so forth. I also recovered from a stroke when I was in my 20s, more recently had the tragedy, and I'm continuing to work through from a healing standpoint of the, the suicide of my younger brother, Ben, uh, last year. Ben was an artist and musician. Uh, I've been suffering for a long time. And mental health is one of the key focuses of my life and my life's work for that matter. And I've been able to um, speak to students and professionals, veterans, and folks across the gamut of of human experience to to try to impart some of the the learnings and wisdom I have from both a a health standpoint, you know, medical standpoint, but also from a a broader societal and uh, humanistic standpoint, which is to say that you know, we all suffer in our own ways and most of us suffer in silence and it's very hard to read people. And uh, that was certainly true in the case of my, my younger brother. So, you know, you, you want to be there and you want to be present. You want to listen to people and try to help them in some way, especially folks who, who might be isolating. So that's just, just one thing. And I will kind of wrap up this long-winded, bloviating response by saying I typically tend to look at each day as a blank canvas for growth and creativity and contribution. And that's, that's really, really important to me. It gives me meaning to be able to create things, especially uh, when I can collaborate with other people, which brings us full circle to why we're here. There's a couple of things that I want to call out that there's something from the outside. When you, when you look at you, you see the word hustle and it feels like, you know, I'm, I'm somewhere on the cusp, I think, in my age of people older than me might associate it, hustle with like pool sharks and people younger than me, I think hustle is like a cool word for doing things. Whichever it is, it still feels like it's still like something you do more self-centered. But any cursory glance at at the output of what you do is like when I look at the films that uh, Koffler Pictures does. Well, I look at the ones that are interesting to me. So the first one I looked at was like, it was a whole thing on project-based learning. It was the Ace Leadership School. And then I saw Olympic medal. I guess it was, um, that was Simone Weil. I'm not sure if you're involved with that one, but uh, what you do is meaningful and purposeful is what I read. And is that a contrast with someone who saw, like the cover of Hustle is like bright yellow and black and it's kind of got, the letters are kind of like moving fast. Oh, another big thing was like the story, your story in the New York Times, it begins with a very fast moving, hardworking, does whatever it takes guy. And that is not, that now you've changed. And I, I presume that that's where the Radical Wellness and the Mental Wellness Summit series came from. Yeah, I mean, look, I don't necessarily delineate between kind of the hard-charging, self-motivated, um, me-against-the-world frame and the, the altruistic, you know, desire and, and deep-seeking to help other people. They're really one and the same. You know, I have my sort of journey where I want to push myself, explore curiosities and create things and, and fail on my own and learn and, and service my talents. And that's a big piece of what hustling is about. You know, we can get into sort of the semantics and communication versus connotation. Hustle means different things to different people. But, you know, it, there is a mindfulness to hustling. It's not put your head down and run through a brick wall to get something done. There's, there's, there's a lot more nuance to it. And I think when we were thinking about framing the book as a, a device for understanding the zeitgeist around dreaming and doing and also mining the value landscape and looking at language as a sort of linguist, we try to extract and, and, and do social listening to make sense of the, the world and the time we're living in. And so, you know, we redefined hustle. The, you know, the original sort of etymology, uh, at least looking back several hundred years, is from the old Middle Dutch word hutselen, which means literally to shake. We look at hustle as a way to uh, sort of define our place in the world by shaking free of outdated models and the sort of the anachronisms that are generally imposed on us, you know? So it's like, we have this incredible thing called technology now, right? Which accelerates our ability to pursue things in many ways. And, and I mean, there, there, there are pros and cons to technology and we can argue the merits of these, but the way we defined hustle was decisive movement toward a goal, however indirect, right? So there's an obliquity component to this, not simply A to B, it's what happens in between. How, it, excuse me, ever indirect by which the motion itself manufactures luck, 
So motion and movement is a big piece of it. Surfaces hidden opportunities and charges our lives with more money, meaning, and momentum. So that all being said, it's like, you know, getting back to your question, the collaboration with Call for Pictures, the desire to, you know, push my own boundaries, you know, I am growth oriented. And I, I, I would hope that listeners as well, like, it doesn't mean you have to give yourself a stroke. Like, you know, I was unfortunate in that regard. That happened. And it does happen. And increasingly so do people who are, you know, 30 and under these days. But you don't need to do that. But you do, what I would say is that, like, if you're not motivated to stretch to some degree in, in the sort of the Carol Dweck sense, like, you know, you're never going to grow. And, and the only way to really do it is to get out, put your feet on the ground and start moving, you know, listening, looking for opportunity and testing your, your own capabilities. So, I mean, all of that's very, very important in terms of like, you know, storytelling and, you know, I'll give credit to my brother who's, you know, an award-winning director. Like the reason why the work is so varied is, is our desire to build and construct a meaningful portfolio that we can look back on and say, look, you know, that, that was interesting. I got to work with X, Y, and Z and we were exploring, you know, these themes and, and it just so happens that, you know, when you, when you do really good work, and we're obviously very visually oriented these days, that people see that. They take notice and they can say, look, you know, indisputably, like you've created a thing of beauty. Um, we'd love to work for you. So there is a, you know, it's sort of the gift that keeps on giving and, you know, creating value and being able to um, derive, again, some kind of meaning and, and esteem from it is important as well. It's, so I'm trying to pick out if this is, if what you describe is, You've always been that way or you came to it later and developed it? Yeah, um, that's a good question. I, so I, I think clearly there's, an, there's a, an evolutionary component to this. I didn't start out as an entrepreneur. You know, there's this idea that like, at least based on my research, you know, entrepreneurship, one, doesn't, you know, it's not, it's not the implicit calling for everyone. Some people learn to be entrepreneurs. You know, sometimes entrepreneurship chooses us, so to speak. At some point, we may have some kind of a breakthrough or an epiphany or some kind of serendipitous series of events that unfold. In my case, to be very blunt, you know, I had hit a wall as an artist, uh, Josh. You know, I did a narrative film. Uh, my first film was called The Path of Darkness, Le Chemin de, de la Tenebre in French. And I was very much into like the Godard, you know, <laughs> um, sort of French New Wave stuff that I wanted to you know, emulate that style and so forth. And, you know, I was in my 20s. And, Very personal. And, and um, it was great. It was interesting. And I was looking at sort of the, the experience of loneliness as an artist and told through the, the vein of this hitman in the film. Anyway, great learning experience. Buried myself in debt. That wasn't fun. <laughs> uh, ultimately got a beautiful little film out of it. And it taught me a hell of a lot. And at the time I was working uh, in advertising and marketing and also playing in a band, you know, playing keyboards uh, in the beauty above. And eventually, and then, you know, had been working on a startup before when I had the stroke. But the thing is, life is very finite. And I was very, very clear on that, especially after my stroke, realizing that I was no longer invincible and that your faculties, your senses, your memory, your ability to articulate thoughts and language and ideas can be taken away in a heartbeat. And that, the, the reality is that's terrifying. Right. So for me, it was no longer wasting time to answer your question. I didn't want to waste time. And that may, means I had to get moving and to, to try to things and live the art life and also live sort of the entrepreneurial life. And so finding the way, the nexus, if you will, to connect the two is very important to me. I might have been a little more sort of passive early on, but I, you know, the, you reach, I think, a, a boiling point, a frustration point where you want to set yourself free. And for me, the only way to do that was to truly become an entrepreneur or to take on more of an entrepreneurial approach to life. So, you know, I hope that answers the question. That, that certainly helped me. Yeah, I had a feeling that it was going to go in a direction and I, I might be, I hope I'm, I'm not trying to tease out something that isn't there, but in you're talking about, first of all, there's acting is an essential element of not, of not just academically thinking about things or, or planning forever, uh, being too analytical, although not ignoring analysis, but I felt like I was listening to what you're saying about, especially after you started saying it's about time and not wanting to waste time, that I felt like if you could go back and listen to what you just said and think about that with respect to the environment, maybe I'm like talking about the environment too soon, although for the, so the listeners know just before we hit record, you had said, oh, I have a lot to say about that. And so I, I hope people don't mind if I go into the environment early, 
not that it's too early, but I don't know if it was like a second chance that you were looking at it, but like you wanted to not waste time. You're here to live life. And I feel like there's also not wasting time with acting on the environment. Like I felt very similarly. I didn't go through a medical thing like you did, but when I realized that, you know, I mean, there's some things like the IPCC says there's 12 years before we turn this around. Otherwise it's going to be irrevocable, but also there's, when I found out how much, I guess there was a transition for me from feeling like I felt obliged to do environmental things to when I discovered how delicious food is when it's fresh. And people ask me like, do you ever miss ice cream? And I've just transitioned so much that I'm like eating ice cream. I mean, for one perspective, it feels like it's, I went through a lot of changes. So to me, it's like, it's like stepping in dog poop. It, it feels like it's a natural thing. It's, I don't begrudge dogs for existing. Of course not. I love them but I don't want to step in the poop and I don't begrudge cows for whatever, but I don't want to eat ice cream, but also I really want to eat vegetables and I want to eat delicious stuff. And it's not just that, you know, it's, it's also, I don't want to sit around watching TV because there's life to be lived. I don't know if I sound too scattered, but when I was thinking about what to talk to you about, I was thinking that that was something that I saw in you of, and, and that you weren't going to wait around and you have life to live, but also you're not hurried. You're not, um, I'm going from what what you wrote in in various places that uh, you yeah talk about time your priorities you're not going to waste your time with things that are not worth your time because you have things that are worth your time they they are and, and here here's how I would I might sort of unpack that further right so hustle itself was kind of our reflections on what you know human potential looks like in this day and age and the the drives around more money more meaning and more momentum are really really implicit and important vitally important, you know, and they give us some degree of buoyancy, the idea that each of us can know ourselves better, right? I mean, I think it was Thales who is quoted as saying, like, to, to know thyself, that is most difficult. To give advice, that's the easiest thing, right? But the essence of knowledge, and you agree with this, is self-knowledge. And how do we determine or discover self-knowledge? It, it's by putting ourselves in motion and questioning things and examining things and as like, uh, Socrates wrote, and it's like, the unexamined life is not worth living. That was, I think, even more fundamental intellectually, philosophically, creatively, spiritually, even existentially. That was the question, right? What does the examined life look like? And once you come to that conclusion, right, and there are various factors. It wasn't simply a stroke. It was going through a very painful breakup with an ex-girlfriend. It was uh, determining that you know, I wasn't a child anymore and I really needed to, to move forward in a meaningful way. And, you know, at the same time, like realizing that to really kind of put yourself forward requires developing a sense of confidence and courage. And the only way to develop confidence and courage is what? Is by actually doing more things, right? Because that's when you know, sort of you stand up straight and, and you can actually say, you know what? I tried that and I crushed it I failed miserably, but I learned a hell of a lot. It's having that willingness and also being, you know, having the, the sort of the, the desire for more sort of risk. There's really good quality and value to taking risks, especially small risks that teach you a lot. So, I, I mean, the whole notion of sort of human potential is just getting out of our own way. And for me, it was recognizing that, you know, sort of going through the man in the mirror exercise, looking at myself and saying, you know what? I am nowhere near my potential. And quite honestly, Joshua, like where I am now, absolutely. Like I, I'm maybe like a quarter of the way there. Honestly, a quarter of the way there. I mean, I've worked on dozens and dozens of books. And I've been fortunate in that world. I've worked on lots and lots of media projects. I've worked on lots and lots of ventures. And, you know, there's, there's never a dull moment in terms of like where the environment comes in and why it's so important. I mean, it is ultimately the connective tissue. And I would argue that one of the reasons why people are so let's say, challenged in sort of this world or, or, let's say, overburdened or overworked or exhausted is because of this disconnection with, with the national world, right? And, and I think there's a lot to that. And I would argue that, you know, we can take all the vitamins in the world, but if we're not getting vitamin N, right, time in nature, unplugged, disconnected, meaningfully disconnected from technology, like we're, we're never going to heal. I mean, that's a big piece of the problem. I know we're getting somewhat tangential, but like, you know, for me, you know, nature is ultimately the, the great healing 
uh, experience. And the more time I can spend in nature, the better. You know, as I mentioned to you, I'm, I'm living in Mexico at the moment, well, you know, between the U.S. and Mexico primarily. But, uh, you know, having had a, a daughter recently and, and my wife and I being here, it's like, you know, I can look out the window as I am right now. I mean, granted, it's, it's uh, after sunset, but it's very troubling to see the degree of uh, air pollution that we have. And I wonder what is it going to be like in 15 years, right? And what might be the consequences? Now, you know, for us, thank God we have the, the you know, if we choose to live on a farm in Vermont, we can do that, right? But it, it is a concern of mine to know that, you know, there are real risks there and that premature death is, you know, one of the, the products of the, the, air, the air pollution issues. Um, I, I don't know how much time you spend in Mexico City, for example, but I'm working on a film down there. And, you know, I can only take a few hours outside before I'm just exhausted, right? And because the air quality is so poor. That's a real concern. Are there ways that we can, we can sort of remediate things and, and fix them? Yes. Uh, is it going to take a hell of a lot of investment and will? Absolutely. Political will. 100%, right? And so, and that's going to take all of us. But, you know, I think we have the ability to do that. It's just a question. <laughs> Um, of, you know, how, how do we get more involved? So I can tell you what I'm doing and if you want to get into that, but, you know, please, uh, before we go there, let me know if you have any other questions. Uh, I could go in a lot of different directions. I'm kind of curious, you, you're saying the environment is meaningful to you. And then you said, as you know, I'm in Mexico. And I think you're implying something there that I'm not sure if I totally got. It was being in Mexico, it was at a decision to do, to live more environmentally or to be closer to an environment that you liked. I think you assumed something was obvious that it wasn't, yeah, the, well, no, my, my point about being here is, you know, we've relocated, you know, at least temporarily to, for a few different reasons, right? One reason is because we wanted a slower pace of life. Another reason is that, you know, I wanted my, my daughter to have access to her broader family, my wife's relatives here. You know, there are other reasons as well. Um, I mean, we, you know, we're fortunate we're overlooking the city, a city of 5 million people, by the way. And the back, our sort of backyard is a, a green mountain, essentially. But when we look down, we see the rings of pollution. It's in a valley kind of like Los Angeles. And, you know, on bad days, you can't be outside. Like it, is, it is physically dangerous, not from um, human uh, threats, but from uh, environmental issues. And so that is a concern of mine, right, being here. So I have sort of, in some ways, a, a slower life and a, and a life that, um, moves in a in a rhythm that is is more appealing, more humanizing. At the same time, there are real health issues here. So you know you, you're constantly balancing those two things. So it's vaguely like smoking a couple packs of cigarettes a day if you were in the city, as opposed to above it. You know, I, I imagine that's. I, I don't know if that's 100 percent accurate, but I imagine there you know there would be some real um, you know potential lung damage the, the more you're exposed to it. Absolutely, man. It's. <laughs> Sometimes you just have to think of like the world that we've created. Okay. You talked about action in two different ways. One of them was when you were talking about, let's say the ancient Greeks and you were saying, and also um, the way to do things is to act. And then that's how to develop yourself. It's how to learn about yourself. And it's also, you also, in a different context, you talk about action as being that, what do we have to do with the environment? We, we have to act like all of us. And it's funny that most of us are not acting as much as we would like to, or we think we should. And yet we all agree that we all should act. I, I, I'm sorry. We don't all agree that we all should act, but a lot of people feel that. And there's, I think a lot of people view the action as something they are obliged to do or have to do or should do, or other people want them to do. And when you talk about acting oneself, it's to gain self-awareness and self-knowledge. And that's something everyone wants to do. And I, somehow it feels like we've turned something that we all want to do and expect that we would like into something that we, and, and then also many, I still do feel obliged because they think of future generations and things like that, and yet keep not acting or keep doing what they did before. So it's acting, but not changing their actions to fit with what they care about. Well, look, I, I think that the truth is that talk is very cheap, uh, Joshua. And I would argue that um, we are, at least in the U.S., very much a culture of denial. We are an age-denying, environmental destruction-denying, death-denying culture. We just are. That's just the reality. So we're disconnected from, from the truth, if you will. And I'm not like you know beating the sort of the Greenpeace wagon, but the reality is like you know you spend time abroad. Like, for example, if you were to go to let's say the world's most polluted cities and live there for a year, as an as a typical American, okay, 
Mm-hmm. You think you would give more of a shit about the environment? I'm just asking you the question. Yes or no? I would think so. Of course you would, because you would feel it in your lungs when you wake up every day, right? I mean, unless you became so inured, you don't care anymore. So, you know, the reality is like, what a gift to live in like a clean environment. What an incredible blessing when you look around the other world and especially, um, you know, sort of third world countries and countries that are, are not quite developed yet that have suffered and don't have the same quality of gas, same quality of air, same quality of, of environment that we get to enjoy, right? And so, uh, you know, water quality for that matter. So it's like, you know, it, we, we can be uh, distracted until it really starts hitting us, you know? So if you're, if you're in, a, in a community where you are directly impacted, you know, the Flint, Michigans of, of the U.S., for example, then you're going to be up in arms and you're going to care. The worst thing you can imagine happening, and I say this now as a father and as a husband, is like I, you know, would, would never want anything to happen to my daughter or my wife because, you know, when, when we when we have, we are ostensibly in control of, of sort of uh, of the environment. So, you know, my my concern is that um, when you're not dealing with it directly, it's very easy to to commit in an ephemeral way and, and verbally to making change. It's very hard to do otherwise. And again, you know, being sort of an independent thinker and, and political agnostic, like it's not a left-right thing. I could give a rat's ass about that argument. Democrat and Republican, it's ridiculous, wasteful. The reality is that conservation is a good thing, especially as we think about posterity. You can argue the science all you want. I mean, the facts are the facts, right? So let's deal with instead one of the little things we can do every day. You know, having written a book about um, conservation in, in the past, like for me, you know, you're dealing with simple issues of air, energy, and water, right? So air quality, water quality, and, and more energy efficient systems. Those are things that everyone can get behind, right? And then it's just sort of like, you know, protecting the natural world, cleaning up, you know, not polluting, things of that, of that nature that are really, really important. But then it's the bigger question of on the sort of a day-to-day basis. It's like, do we get out and revere, you know, this incredible, incredibly abundant planet that we, we've been blessed to share? You know, can we get away from our technology for long enough to do that? And I say that ironically as we record this through computer interfaces, burning uh, some kind of fuel uh, in each of our, our homes or, or offices. And, and so it's like, look, you know, it's this constant battle. You know, clearly, is, is the technology in a place where we could radically change the system overnight if we wanted to? You may know the answer to that better than I, but what I will say is that it's, change is coming, ultimately. You know, we're going to move away from... Um, hydrocarbon into some kind of other fuel, uh, especially transportation fuel, and into a, more of a blended experience of, of life where, you know, we, we by necessity, we have to, uh, we have to be more mindful of, of the damage we're causing. Now, um, am I optimistic? Am I inherently and fundamentally hopeful? I am. And I, I do think that, I don't think it's all doom and gloom. I do think ultimately, you know, we will um, alter the way we live and make better choices that are more efficient and that are more mindful of the environment, environmental damage. Fundamentally, I do, I do believe that. And I've seen that, spent a lot of time overseas, especially in, in Scandinavia and Denmark uh, in particular. And look, you know, I, I think we, we will make a shift. It's just going to happen. What you're saying sounds very passionate and very thought out. And I mean, you said it sounded like there are obviously limits to anyone's knowledge and to extent anyone's thought about various things. But it sounds like this is coming from somewhere. What's driving this? If you don't mind my asking, what's, when you think about the environment, what do you think about it? And is that in a way that motivates you? I mean, look, I'll be very, very sort of blunt. I was very fortunate of a few sort of um, pivotal events in my life. And uh, one of them was having the experience of going to the Amazon basin in 2003, 2004, to work on a speculative documentary on shamanism and healing and working with, let's call them learned teachers, and uh, becoming actually a subject in a film that we were working on. But when you have the intensity of the experience of doing you know, entheogens, stuff that Michael Pollan has been writing about more recently, and, and many others, obviously McKenna before him and, and, um, and other notables, uh, you know, it changes your perspective on things. So you know, can I very clearly say that sort of the scientific material, egocentric, world that we're sort of, you know, we're, we're living in and dwelling in at the moment, does it have any value, like me, real, real meaning and value? I mean, I can make the argument that it's absolutely meaningless, okay? And that the experience of being at one with nature, if you will, is probably the most meaningful thing you can possibly do. It's our, us, humanity in our primal form, 
It just is. Right? You strip away all the bullshit devices, all the material trappings, and we're just one with nature. There's nothing more exhilarating. And I'll give you another for instance. I had the good fortune of, of uh, visiting my mom when she was a visiting professor in Botswana in Gaborone. Uh, my wife and I, my wife is a wildlife veterinarian. She works with big mammals typically and journalists as well. And we went over in 2009, 2010 to Botswana and got to spend time in South Africa and, and in the Okavango Delta in, in Botswana. And if you want, like, <laughs> talking about a transformational experience, like truly bifurcating from the reality of being in a technologically driven world to one that is utterly cut off where you don't have a cell phone, don't need a cell phone. You've got your clothes, you've got your hands, your feet, your eyes, your senses, and you're plugged into the world and you can be literally have your head ripped off by a baboon or like be eaten by a lion at any moment. That's the environment I'm talking about, right? That rawness, that really raw primitive thing is incredible. And so if you really want to know sort of what you're made of, like go have that experience. Don't take a weapon with you. Go out into the bush, track lions for 36 hours straight, you know, feel that sense of terror and fear, feel that sense of confidence and uh, encourage, put yourself out there, like be willing to eat, be eaten by a crocodile, literally, or be like chopped in half by a hippo, which we almost were. Like, it's actually a really, really strengthening experience. And you have to balance those two worlds when I'm talking about the primitive raw reality of nature versus sort of this, this imposed system that we've created. They're both wonderful, man. It really depends on sort of, again, what's, what's of, of import to you. But for me, you know, I, there is a solace to and really, really, what I would say, deeply rewarding experience when you plug yourself back into the natural world. And I think it's incumbent on all of us to take time to do that with our, ourselves and with our families and so forth. My brother, whom I mentioned in the introduction, who, who took his own life, was... He couldn't fit into the world of technology. It just wasn't for him. You know, he was too good for this world, as my wife likes to put it. He's a beautiful soul. He's brilliant. He's a musician and musical prodigy, a very, very gifted writer, a better writer than I could ever wish to be. And still, he couldn't find his footing. And he had other problems as well and been suffering. And, you know, he said, enough, and he checked out. And as painful as, as it is, and I, I don't mean to dismiss him, it's obviously life-altering for me and my family and his friends. You know, I, I understand where he's coming from and I empathize. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's sad that certain people can't uh, fit into the world we, we live in. You know, nature makes more sense to them, right? So that's the primitive thing I'm talking about. Um, getting back to what's really of, of essence, uh, not the superficial, but the real world of, 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 of blood and of dirt and of sunshine and of fertility and so forth. All those things are very, very deeply meaningful. And the ritual of going back into, plugging back into sort of the earth mother, if you will, um, is very, very important. That's some serious, I mean, I'm listening to this in many different levels. Uh, probably the top one for me is getting a different perspective of how I, I talk a lot about and, and really enjoy recent trips to farms. I didn't grow up on a farm. I, didn't, I grew up in the city. I've, I've always been in the city. And I really love like digging my hands in the dirt and stuff and, uh, you know, picking out carrots and things like that. Seeing the kale and being like, that's well, I used to say, I'm going to eat that. And now I've realized like, I'm going to be that actually, like some of that kale is going to be part of me. And now, but what you're talking about is, it feels like it's on a, on a different level of, of aliveness. And I guess I read a book on um, the San or the Bushmen in South Africa. And, you know, I've been vegetarian for a long time and reading about their hunting. I was like, that's not like that. They're eating meat is totally different than my concept of, of eating meat. And all sorts of things were very different concepts. And, but I've actually been there. And it feels like I'm, I'm wondering if it's fair to take away. Did people, when we are ancestors, that we have all, you know, like say early Homo sapiens, were they living much more alive than we are today? I'm kind of wondering that. And I, you know, this is dabbling from a distance of not really knowing what I'm talking about. No, no, I hear you. And, and uh, to, to just interject, I think it's a very fair question. It depends on how you define being alive, right? I mean, if you're if fully alive is a question of surviving day to day, certainly, you know, we could support the notion that they were living in a much more alive life, more, more alive and, and more sort of tuned in lives. I don't necessarily, you know, think that's the case. I think, you know, getting out and hunting your own food is, is never a bad thing. If you do, you need. I have plenty of friends who hunt and are regular hunters. 
I think the, the big question is really about integrating and balancing, integrating and balancing. So how do you bring sort of the, the wisdom of the natural world into the realities of the te- technological world and vice versa? Like, how do we make sense of the two? How do we find, again, or strike some degree of balance and not uh, overcompensate? I think that's really the question that we're asking when, when it comes to feeling. Because, you know, look, we live in the, modern, live in the 21st century, for God's sake, right? Um, and technology is a wonderful gift. It's just a question of um, not turning your back on nature, per se, you know? And <laughs> so that's very much a subjective experience, you know? And so for people who are listening, it's like, it's not all or, or it's, not, it's not a zero-sum game. Like, you've got to find... You have a foot in the, the, the world of technology because you need to sustain yourself and your family, whatever you choose to do. If you do, in fact, use technology, and there are certainly other outlets um, for exploring human potential that don't require you know, the, the same focus on technology. But at the same time, it's like, you know, you don't want to cut yourself off because you really lose touch with humanity when you lose touch with nature, I would argue. And so it is important just to get out and walk around and, you know, go on a hike every day. I think it's absolutely critical. And, and there are other things you can do as well that, you know, to say that, that, you know, one, like the Bushmen are, are more fully alive. I mean, you know, just, again, it depends on context and like how you define that. I mean, that's more of a survival impulse and instinct and the ritual and so forth. And it's fascinating to study. And it really hasn't changed a whole lot if, if, you, if you really go deep into the bush and experience and spend time with, with the Sun people and, and, and various tribes who, um, who are similar in their behaviors. My understanding is that it's not so much, okay, I don't know what I'm talking about here, but I think that is it, if they've lived there for a long time, they're not, it's not a survival, like they're not going to accidentally get eaten by a crocodile because they've, they know what they're doing. Like, I don't think it's a survival issue. Are, are they about to get eaten all the time? But I, my understanding was that, but they're closer to nature, the, the rhythms, the paces, the, the colors, the sounds are more, I would guess, what we evolved with. They didn't walk into a store and buy some pre-made packaged food or whatever, they, they go out and trap the animal. And that, that's what I meant by life, not like on the board of life and death, but on enjoying life or living it to its fullest. And they don't have Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. And I would guess the reason Game of Thrones is so enthralling for so many people is that it's probably tapping on things that evolved in, our, in, in environments like that, that, of like, we do want to know gossip and we do want to know about, I, I watch Game of Thrones. I think it's like, I think it's about gossip and, and like intrigue and drama. And that's probably the worlds that they lived in, except it was actually their community. Like, I don't know. I'm kind of, I'm kind of speculating. What are you talking about? I've not heard before. And so I just have one friend who spent a bit of time on, I don't know what you call it, on a safari, living with, with people there. And he's in Tanzania, I think, Dar es Salaam. Anyway, so, and he had some experience there, but you've said more than I got from him. Well, look, I mean, I think they're, there are different ways to look at it. I mean, my, my point, not necessarily um, life and death, but the survival, the mode of being on the hunt, let's say. It's not, <laughs> it's not typical for, unless you're, you're a hunter and you do so with some regularity, it's not typical for folks to go out and hunt their food every day, right? Hunt for food and uh, they're having the satisfaction of providing for their community, their tribe, their family, themselves. But that burden has been lifted, right? Or um, growing their own food. Like, not everyone does that. The home, the urban homestead, if you will, this kind of stuff you're doing. But I mean, I think there, there is such a, um, an, an incredible and enriching experience when you can kind of get a sense of what that's like to do. And you have such a deeper appreciation for the energy that goes into it. Uh, and that's, that's what I mean. I, I think a lot of us are out of touch in that regard. And um, I mean, I mean, a lot of us are not, but the vast majority of us, I would argue, um, don't have any semblance of what that's like, nor do they really care. Why, why would I care when I can, you know, very easily on an app order food and in 20 minutes I have any meal I want? You, you know what I mean? So it's just like, you know, it, it's, it's nice to get away from that for a little while. It's also nice to be able to have that at the same time, to have access the way we do now and speed. Feeling inspired? Do you like hearing others acting that you're not alone? Go to joshuaspodek.com slash podcast to hear other interviews but even more valuable, join the growing community of people who care enough to act, not just talk. Read the list of people who have taken on personal challenges and then commit to one yourself. Don't be surprised if you end up loving it, changing more, and finding people following you without you even trying. That's what happens when you improve your life by living by your values. So given all the things that you talked about, it sounds like 
not to oversimplify, I hope I'm not oversimplifying, but you had some pivotal experiences. And there was the, the experience in the Amazon with Botswana and also just knowing what what's out there, that having those, I don't want to put into words what you just said, uh, because you just said it and you know it better than I do. So given that caring and this action orientation, what I like to do with my guests is to invite them at their option. Oh, and also I, I, one thing you said about the scale of things to be done seems so great, but also that the personal action is, it's got to start somewhere. And I think a lot of people get bogged down or freaked out by thinking if, if what I do is not on the scale of what's necessary to be done, then it's not worth doing. And I suspect that you would agree with me that actually what you do yourself is, the mo- is incredibly valuable. And it's also the fastest, most effective way to get stuff to happen on a bigger scale. Anyway, that's me except for just talking on my own. But what I invite you to do, if you're, if you're game for it, and what I ask the guests on the podcast is, given what you care about, is there something that you aren't already doing that you've thought about doing that you might do to act on those things? And you know, not, this is not to fix the world, but just to act something like what you're talking about, but maybe something you haven't already been doing of acting on these cares. Yeah, sure. I mean, I think there are a number of different things. So let's look at um, air quality here more locally. You know, the the sort of aforementioned concerns I had about the exposure to to toxic air, essentially. So is that something that I can involve in? Absolutely. And uh, can I do so? Um, on a daily basis by driving less? Absolutely. Is it something I'm very mindful of? It is, actually. The other side of it is, do I have a voice when it comes to (laughs) being abroad and uh, talking to stakeholders and influencers politically? Yeah, I mean, I happen to have uh, connections and contact with people here who actually wield tremendous influence on national policy. And so can I get more involved and have that conversation and ask the questions? Yes. At the same time, am I mindful of some of the real challenges when you're dealing with a country that is also suffering from you know, real poverty issues and still trying to emerge as a, you know, from a third world status into you know, more of a stable and emerging economy? Yeah. I mean, look, you know, we, I think uh, air pollution is a concern. I think the, the, the things that I can do individually are you know, an array of things from driving less to speaking more and getting involved in, in groups who are concerned and, you know, hoping that we can enact some other types of change and um, very slow, but, but transition into uh, a time people can, can be more mindful about how they drive, how they use uh, and burn fuel. Absolutely. You know, so that's one thing of many that I can do. I think on sort of the other concerns I think simply just helping you know people plug back into the natural world, and I think that then becomes uh, one a question of education, but also um, I think the more people are exposed to it and unplug from technology and and kind of tune out of the the speed of um, the modern world, there is something quite revitalizing about uh, about making a conscious psychological decision to spend more time in nature, and the benefits are immense. Um, you know, if you're familiar with the work of Florence Williams, uh, the nature fix idea, vitamin N, the benefits in terms of our health and happiness are immense. So, you know, teaching people, I think part of my legacy, quite honestly, uh, Joshua, is in, you know, in, in Benny's, Benny's death and passing, is starting a foundation in his name, um, which is designed, dedicated, and um, conceived to uh, help our our, our you know, younger generations spend more time in nature and educate them about, you know, plants and animals and uh, conservation because it's, you know, it's their world that they inherit. So that's another thing that is very, very important to me. And, and one that's on, as I look on my, my uh, chart of, of goals and things to do, you know, short and long term, that, that's certainly a pillar as well. So I think, look, between the choices I make, my engagement in civic society and trying to improve air quality, and finding out you know, practical solutions there, that's certainly part of it. And then in, in educating uh, people to spend more time, um, and that's something I'm actively engaged in every day. So can I do more? Absolutely. And, and it's a work in progress. You know, there's no quick fix. Of all the things you mentioned, and it was a, a bunch of things, there's personal things in terms of, say, your driving habits. There's influential things in terms of the people you talked about that have influenced where you are. There's getting in touch with nature and doing things to experience it more personally, more closely. There are several things. On this podcast, I try to focus, I've made a a strategic choice, and I hope that 
in, in no way am I saying that the other stuff is not important or it's possibly more important. But I like to focus on people doing something where they themselves do something that they then, and then I like to have, it could be short-term, it could be long-term, it can be, but something where someone is doing something that they themselves experience and that has a measurable effect on something that matters to them, environmentally speaking. And so I don't want to not pay attention to things like influencing others, but I want to focus on, is there something that you could do that we could then talk again after the right amount of time for it to happen to say what that experience was like for you? Partly because I have a belief and expectation now, having had a lot of conversations like this, that whatever you choose to do, after you do it, you'll be glad you did it. And I predict that however glad you think you'll be, if you think before doing it, oh, I'm going to like doing that, you'll still feel more glad than you expected, even taking that into account. Sure. I I think it's a very, you know, it's an interesting question. And uh, (laughs) I want to create a culture of people feeling like I'm not the only one doing this. I've heard other people doing it and an expectation of, oh, if I, I, you know, so that hopefully people listening at home are thinking to themselves, what Jonas is answering for himself, but you know, they don't, they haven't been to Botswana or the Amazon or maybe they have, but whatever it is for them is that they are also thinking to themselves, what could I do to act on my thing? And then when they hear you the second time, it could, I don't know how it'll go, but if it goes, if it happens to that, you come back and say, oh, it's really awesome. Then they'll, they'll feel more motivated to do it. And, and I want the world to feel like, I think there's a lot of feeling like if I act, but no one else does and what I do doesn't matter. And I don't, I want people to feel like I'm not the only one doing this. It's, it's high time I start, I get going. Sure. So I, I think, you know, you're, you're asking essentially a question about, you know, sort of a, a change agent in the, convers- in the conservation sense. I think what I w- would would argue is a couple of things, you know, and what I'm committed to doing is, is you know, potentially get more people walking in nature and spending time in nature, and that's very simple because I, I want to encourage people to have those moments of awe and appreciation. And it's you know, it sounds on the surface sort of simple to do, but what would be great is if you know wherever I am, I can you know encourage more and and draw more people out. Uh, into the natural world, and even if it's just walking in in a park and you know picking up trash and doing little things like that, you know I, I tend to walk every day. You know that's a big piece of my my life. I do my best thinking when I'm out walking in nature. And so um, if there's a sort of one thing you want to, to focus on and come back and sort of you know share my findings, <laughs> um, I think it would be that, and I can do that in now a, a cross cultural context. And hopefully that that um, you know gives us more food for thought as we as we advance the conversation about the little things that we can do every day. So it's 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 that alone. It's spending more time outdoors and getting people outdoors and, and more appreciative and finding those moments of awe, as I said, because the benefits are not only good for the environment, but they're really, really good for our internal environment and our minds. And that's really, really important. Let me see if I get it straight if I get it right. So you you take walks generally now and as a way of recharging and so forth. And for a, a period of time, you would increase that, but also, and on top of that, involve other people to experience it with you or on their own separately. So that sounds really intriguing. I, I'd be very, I'd very much like to hear how that worked out, especially because it sounds like it's coming from inside, that this isn't something you'd be doing for me. This is something you'd, you'd want to do. Am I, am I reading that right? Yeah. So here's a, a very simple metaphor. And let's move aside from sort of the cheese or, or, or sort of conventional uh, factors like you know, the, the cultural reference. You're familiar with The Walking Dead, right? There's a show called The Walking Dead. Yeah, I've seen it. I mean, I've, I haven't seen the show, but I've seen that it exists. Yeah. Okay. So there is this show called The Walking Dead. I think it's an AMC show. Anyway, so the, the premise is that there's sort of this plague, this um, uh, biological agent has rendered people um, as zombies now, right? And they're, they're, there's a set of survivors. Well, I mean, it's kind of a funny metaphor for sort of people who are sleepwalking through life. But anyway, we don't need to get into that. But the point is, um, instead of like framing it as like The Walking Dead, what I want to do instead is to invite people to become more fully alive. So let's call hmm. it The Walking Alive, right? <laughs> uh-huh. and, and we, you know, we can do it and we can you know, sort of test it out and, and I can <laughs> share some data points for you. But imagine, you know, on any given day, at any given time, Instead of there being you know a few hundred or a few thousand, a few million people walking, we exponentially increase that number, right? And bring community together around celebrating that what it is to be human, that 
what, what it is to be outdoors together. I think it's a, sort of a, a very powerful concept. So if I can help drive that, initiate it, encourage more people to do it and inspire them to actually do it and report on it, then you know, I think it's a step in the right direction, if you will. I love it. And partly because you also use the word initiate and it makes me think of the book that I'm about to put out, or I guess when people listening have just put out. You don't say. <laughs> and um, how long do you think it would take before to schedule a second conversation to share what that experience was like? Oh man, it's a, it's a tough question. I mean, I think, you know, what are we, we're in May essentially. So I think we're talking probably early in the fall, maybe. Okay. So like six months. Yeah. I think six, six months is a good amount of time. Sure. All right. So after we finish recording, then um, if it's cool with you, we'll set up a date to record the second conversation. Fair enough. Okay. And now I would love to keep going and I think we will keep going. I have a, I suspect we'll talk between now and then anyway, hopefully not, but we'll keep the surprise for the listeners. But I'd like to, if it's cool with you, I'd like to wrap up with a couple of questions. One is, is there anything I didn't think to ask that's worth bringing up? And the other is any message directly for listeners? Uh, I mean, look, you know, I, I think we could probably talk for, for days, yeah. uh, days and days. And so um, we'll, we'll certainly have more, more time to, to discuss other concerns. But yeah, I mean, I, I would encourage people, regardless of where they are in the sort of the political spectrum, to step aside from that and to realize the value that a clean environment and a healthier environment bring to their own lives, right? So I, I kind of start there. And in terms of announcements, you know, depending on when this broadcasts, I do want to tell people and invite people into a very unique experience that I've been working on the last few months. Uh, and that is the, the Own Your Future Summit. It is designed to be an empowering experience that we're broadcasting at the end of May and into early June. Um, we've brought together 40 of uh, the most inspiring and, and um, I think interesting folks that that I've been able to interview uh, in, in recent times and talk to them about um, some of the things that have empowered them in their lives, the wisdom and philosophy uh, tips and sort of practical considerations that, that they brought into the world and that have allowed them to succeed. Um, and when not succeed, fail and learn from those failings so that they could you know, continue um, propelling themselves. And that's, again, Own Your Future Summit. And, um, and besides that, you know, <laughs> working on um, a documentary called um, We Care Here, uh, it's just We Care Here film, and we've, um, we're about uh, a third of the way through production. My brother's directing it, our executive producer, Don Harvey, and we sort of have a who's who of very interesting people. Elizabeth Aveyan, who's Robert Rodriguez's partner, producer, ex-wife, is one of our advisors. And uh, we have several other really kind of interesting people attached to, in, in the Austin sort of film scene and beyond. And, and so that's, that's one project I'm very excited about that's dedicated to Benji. My, my little brother died uh, and the spirit is to help empower people who are dealing with mental and emotional uh, health challenges so that they get feel stronger and feel more supported and, uh, and know that they're going to be okay. And then aside from that, I'm working on a number of other ventures, uh, Spera as a startup, uh, a lot of labs and, and so forth. But, you know, we, we can post some of these links. But anyway... A lot happening, never a dull moment. Every day is interesting. And the thing for me that's been very powerful is uh, the ability not only to initiate, as you would say, but also to compartmentalize the various projects I'm working on. So I don't uh, go crazy with the, the, the sheer volume of things that I'm working on any, any one day. I was going to ask about that. And so I'm glad you said that you have, you've, I presume you've developed the skill of that compartmentalizing so that uh, it all still adds up to a wonderful life. Because it sure sounds like you have a wonderful life. I do. And I feel very blessed. And part of that blessing is being able to work with uh, incredibly talented people. And, and uh, especially in the entrepreneurial world, you know, working with people like uh, Jay Papazan and, and Gary Keller and Dave Jenks, um, uh, if you know the book, The One Thing. I think in, in, when you work with someone of that caliber, you benefit in, in innumerable ways. One of them very directly was understanding the power of time blocking. And also knowing, you know, when you can be maximally productive. And so your energy throughout a day and being able to capitalize on that. Uh, but also knowing, you know, where leverage points exist in life and also surrounding yourself with other talented people. And so, you know, none of these projects is, I mean, granted, I put a hell of a lot of effort in everything I'm doing, but none of these is, is per se purely me. I, I work in a very collaborative fashion on everything I do, quite honestly. And so that, you know, that only, not only makes it, reasonable to, to complete uh, or to sort of even initiate for that matter, 
but um, but more fun and more joyful. And so, you know, one of the things I, I would encourage people to do is find those really, really good people and surround yourself with them. So, you know, you're going to find that as you move in and out of projects throughout your years and you construct this legacy, you know, there's an architecture there. And the architecture is influenced and informed by the people that you surround yourself with, right? The people who leave sort of marks on the projects that you work on. Uh, and so, so it's very, very important to be mindful of that. I can't help but ask, but indulge myself in asking a question that it's semi-personal, but not really, uh, that a lot of people, when they talk about the stuff that I do, they say that it sounds like there's so many different things that I'm doing. And I can see that it might look like that from the outside, but to me internally, I'm doing, it's all one thing that I'm working on and they're all different facets of it. And do you feel like that with you or do you, are you doing widely disparate things or disparate things? Or is that, does that question make sense? It does make sense. No, I would argue that they're very, they are different. Fundamentally, they're different in that the, the output is different, but there may be sort of stories and threads there. Is there a common or a shared through line? I mean, I would say, yeah, it's, I mean, you know, the creative world, that's, that's where I work. Some of these things feel more businessy, if you will. Uh, some of them are sort of purely art for art's sake. And, but I always, I always like, if, if you, if you want to sort of sum it up uh, and I hate that expression, but I'll just use it here. It's like, you know, it's just part of the creative journey, man, you know, and, and <laughs> I mean, we can sort of title these things differently and because they are fundamentally different, but if I look back as like the building blocks, the Tetris of life, right, and projects, the shapes are different. They just are. Yeah, I, I appreciate your answer. I was just kind of get uh, when I was looking, when I was reading about you and, and reading your stuff. I was thinking, I was thinking about saying things to you like people keep saying to me of how there's lots of different things going on. But I was I didn't want to go that way in the interview, and I hope I didn't because when people do it with me, I feel like they don't understand me. Well, because, okay, and you're right, because people want a very um, sort of presentable, understandable um, packaging of, of our identities. And it's not that simple. It just is, you know, we're, we're uh, polychromatic beings, okay? It's not monochromatic. You're not black and white. You're not a robot, right? You have thoughts and, and pursuits and things that are interesting to you and your own quirks and, you know, those things that are very, very identifiable and make you unique in the world. Uh, but we, we all want that sort of, that one identifier moniker label that makes us understandable and digestible, like he or she or you know, they are this. And I, it's not that simple, you know, especially when it comes to creative pursuits. And so, uh, so I would say, you know, no, I mean, the things I do are different because that's stimulating. I have a very, very active imagination and I don't want to be one thing. I, don't, I have no desire for that. I mean, if I'm going to be anything, it's going to be productive until I can no longer walk, talk, think, move, breathe, etc. But it's not, you know, it's not that uh, you know, I'm a writer or it's not that I'm an entrepreneur. You know, it's not that I'm a father or a husband. I'm many, many things. And I do all of them because that makes me feel whole as a person. And it gives, gives life real, real meaning and money and momentum, like the things that you wrote about, you know. So, um, so that's how I'd answer that question. I hope that helps. Yeah, I, I was looking for a different perspective and I got it. And I, you wrapped up with money, meaning, and momentum, which is what hustle is about. And if it's cool with you, then I'll close at that. Absolutely. No, it's been a, a real pleasure and, and a stimulating conversation, uh, engrossing at times and, and really fun. So I appreciate it, uh, Joshua. And I look forward to providing <laughs> some feedback on my experience in this experiment that I'm going to be running now. Jonas Koffler, thank you very much. My pleasure. I don't know about you, but I would love to go on a nature walk with Jonas. Not just for the adventures that he's had, which suggests that he'd have more adventures again, and I don't think there'd be crocodiles biting your head off or things like that, but because he cares. He would do this, and it sounds like he's going to do this, out of passion, which I expect that he would share. I can't help also thinking that wherever we are, city, suburb, exurb, slum, gentrified area, whatever, somewhere accessible is the most natural context that we have available to us. We can choose to experience nature as much as we can and help restore, conserve, or augment it. So what he's going to do is available to anyone without going with him. We can all do it. Meaning a comparable experience is accessible to everyone. 
Before closing, I just want to suggest read his New York Times article, follow the links that he mentioned. I included them on the page. Check them out. I'd also check out his films and other things that he's done. He's done some really prolific stuff, very thought-provoking things. Did you feel inspired too? Then act. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and click to commit to your personal challenge so you can inspire others. Value means better and worse, and living by your values means living better by your values. You may struggle at first, but it's the hero's journey from living by others' values to living by yours. People say that little things add up. I won't argue against it, but what I find counts is acting. Doing something, anything, starts that mindset shift from the debilitating others should act first or making excuses to the empowering I can make a difference and living by my values improves my life. I don't have to wait for others to act first. I'm looking for leaders, people who will bring what works here in this podcast to communities I haven't reached. Billions of people want to change their behavior. There's room for leadership from personal leadership of just yourself to whatever scale you want. Start by acting and changing yourself. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and commit to your personal challenge.